this is healthy. I'm going to help my patients truly get to the root cause of their disease. And I'm helping the animals. It is a no-brainer. I need to merge a plant-based nutrition and integrate it into my GI practice. And it just helps me become that much more of a powerful doctor. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining me again for another great episode. First of all, hope everyone is doing great. Hope everyone is healthy and well. I just want to say on April 15th was my eight year vegan anniversary. And I'm just so stoked about everything that I've gotten to experience besides all the stuff that I usually talk about, like the health benefits, living a more ethical life, being more eco-friendly and conscious of that. Like, fitness gains, like all that stuff aside, which I am grateful for. I'm just super grateful about all the friends I've made, all the people that I've inspired, like through these podcast episodes, through my YouTube videos, just seeing all the cool places, eating the most amazing food on the planet, changing my career to pursue a career in nutrition, pursuing my passions. None of this would have happened if I never have gone vegan. And I'm so, so grateful. It's amazing what the little changes in your behavior, like the little tiniest little things that you can do and the impact that they have on your life. Literally, guys, I just changed what I ate and everything just snowballed from there. I never would have thought that any of this was possible. But even with all that said, being grateful of all of that, I will never forget that this is about the animals. This is about living an ethical life. And it is. It's a way of life. This is not just some little fad that I'm on. This is not something to just make me feel good. This is about having an impact on those around me. So I hope that inspires you guys a little bit, at least to keep on going, take it day by day and keep killing it. Metaphorically, that is because we're not about actually killing things around here. All right, guys. So this episode is brought to you by FitBod, the number one fitness app out on the market. This was a game changer for me. Amazing app. I downloaded it first in 2018. And man, I've been using it ever since. It allows me to keep track of all my fitness progress in the gym. Generates a custom workout to me based on the equipment that's available to me, the type of workouts that I want to do, my time frame, how long I want the workout to be, and whether I want to build strength, whether I want to build mass, whether I want to do body weight only. It takes all of that into consideration. And you guys can get the app as well if you head over to fitbod.me slash bananiac, F-I-T-B-O-D dot M-E slash B-A-N-A-N-I-A-C. And you get a sweet little discount courtesy of yours truly. And I also want to mention, you guys can download the app and have access to all their body weight workouts during the coronavirus lockdown for free. Yes, while you're self-isolating, while you're quarantining, you can have access to free workouts by downloading the app. So definitely download it now while the offer is still going on and hope you guys come out of this quarantine swole AF. I'm really excited to announce a new partnership with a brand that I've been wanting to work with for a little while. They're called Clean Machine and they make vegan supplements that are specific for athletes. And just like the name hints, they make clean products made from plant-based foods. They have 
BCAAs, they have a protein powder, and a bunch of other stuff. Now, specifically with their protein powder, they actually use something called lentine, which actually has more essential amino acids and more vitamin B12 than any other protein like pea protein, which they still use. There's nothing wrong with pea protein or like any of the other proteins like rice, hemp, or soy, but you're getting more of that higher quality protein. So definitely think more nutrient-dense like kale and spinach. So check out their stuff at cleanmachineonline.com and use the discount code BANANIAC, B-A-N-A-N-I-A-C. So there you go. We set you guys up with an awesome fitness app. We set you up with an awesome vegan protein company. If you guys want any other resources, head on over to bananiac.com. I have literally everything listed for you guys on the top of the banner there, as well as on the resources page. Man, what don't I have on that site? I've got links to books, documentaries, recipe books, kitchen equipment, the camera gear and audio gear that I use to make videos and podcasts, all of the fitness equipment that I use for my personal home gym. I've tried to make the site as user-friendly as possible especially for beginners who are looking to learn more. And you guys can also find the show notes to any of these podcast episodes on the website. So that's bananiac.com. All right. So today's episode is with Dr. Angie Sedeghi, who is a very knowledgeable person. I'm really glad I had her on the show because we talked about so much. We first started off by talking about the coronavirus. We talked a little bit about everything that's happening with that. But we spent the majority of the podcast talking about GI health. That's right. Everything that has to do with the gastrointestinal system because she is a gastroenterologist. And so we literally talk about everything between your mouth and anus, to say it as bluntly as possible. And we talked about a lot of the GI problems that most people have. For example, GERD, which is reflux, heartburn, bloating and gassiness, Crohn's disease and IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, hemorrhoids, colon cancer, constipation, whether you need to change your diet if you've had GI surgery, probiotics. We talked about a lot of stuff, you guys. Before we head into this episode, I also want to say that if you guys are having any GI problems, you guys can actually work with with Dr. Angie Sedeghi one-on-one. She's located in California, so if you're local, she can actually be your doctor. But If you guys are outside of California, she can still work with you via various telecommunication methods. So she can still coach you. And if you guys want to learn more about her, she's at drangiehealth.com. And I'll have all the links in the show notes, which you guys can easily click on and go and follow her and connect with her. So here we go. Episode number 36. Here's Dr. Angie Sedeghi. So I'm here with Dr. Angie Sedeghi. Did I pronounce that correct? That is correct, yes. Thank you so much for your time on coming on. Um, I've been following you for a good while and I love the work that you're doing. So I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. And we were just talking a little bit off camera before about this coronavirus thing. Um, How's everything in California? What have you heard about this so far as a medical doctor and where do you see it going, if I may ask? Well, you know, every time we have a pandemic like this, it's interesting because people freak out and they, they, you know, they talk about it. They, um, our economy changes, collapse, nearly collapses and um, everything 
you know, um, you know, is a mess right now. As you can see, people are losing their jobs. People are dying in the hospitals. And so everyone keeps talking about it. And then literally like after a little short while, it just like dies out and no one's interested anymore. No one's talking about it anymore. And so that, that's what bothers me the most because, um, things like this happen and nobody learns a lesson right? So imagine how many people died worldwide, thousands, right? How many people suffered with the disease? Thousands. And how many people lost their jobs because of what happened? Thousands. We're going to hit a recession, right? And what bothers me that is that in a couple of months, when everything goes back to sort of quote unquote normal, people will forget where this virus came from in the first place. And if we don't learn our lesson, this is going to keep happening. You know, it bothers me that we, we live in a world that people don't think beyond the urgency that's happening at that time. No one thinks about preventing diseases. This is a zoonotic disease. It comes from animals. And as long as we have the animal agriculture and we have these disgusting uh, wet markets, we're going to have this problem over and over again. And there is no end to it. I mean, we had SARS. We've had, I mean, think about salmonella. Every year it kills people. That comes from poultry. Think about E. coli that kills people. That comes from red meat from the cows. Think about um, SARS that we dealt with just recently, not um, not too long ago. Think about um, the influenza virus. I mean, all of these diseases are coming from the consumption of uh, meat, dairy, and eggs. And so I'm hoping, and I, I'm praying, hoping, begging people, please learn your lesson. This is the time for us to stop eating animals. This is a time that we stop contributing to animal agriculture. This is the time that we shut down these wet markets. And this is the time that we start eating a whole food plant-based diet, which is healthier. It does not contribute to these types of pandemics. And it's so much more ethical and it's so much better for the environment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you nailed it there. I think that you know, people are not making the connection where this all originated from. And, you know, it, it led from be, someone eating an animal and then them catching it and spreading it to the world. Um, I think the media is definitely hyping it up and putting a real focus on it. And it is a, a concern for many, like especially the elderly or anyone whose immune system is suppressed. But um, ultimately, yeah, you're right. The way society is going to go back and they'll forget about where it ultimately came from and it'll keep keep on going. Um, I'm more scared of the economic aspect of it, things because that creates panic. And, I'm, you know, I'm not just thinking about the health consequences, but also society and how it's going to function. And, you know, will it lead to more violence and just society breaking apart and i'm not trying to like create a conspiracy theory or anything but i you know you see these videos from online of people in grocery stores fighting over just toilet paper or or bread and it's really sad um but i um you know what what, what can you do i mean i think and, and you look at it differently why why haven't we 
put so much focus and panic around heart disease, for example, the leading cause of death. I mean, I'm sure you're frustrated as well about that in, in diabetes and um, certain forms of cancers. Why are we not panicking? Because the death toll is much worse with those, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Heart disease is um, it kills millions of people around the world every day and no one panics. I think that's just psychology, human psychology, right? What we do is we um, we have the fear of the unknown. So, heart disease is like accepted, right? We, we're supposed to die of heart disease. I mean, this is what, what people think and they go on and they, they don't, like it doesn't scare them. What scares people is something that comes on suddenly and it wipes out the population um, and it li- literally just um, is unknown. It's new, and it it could have been completely preventable. These are things that really freak people out. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I think you're right in that we should be freaking out more about heart disease because it kills more people. And if you think about it, at some point, everyone is going to be infected with the coronavirus. You cannot prevent it. It is going to be, you know, it's going to be the next uh, flu virus. It's just going to keep coming back because when these things come out, it's almost impossible to stop them anymore. It's just going to go. And, you know, it's just going to be the survival of the fittest. And if, if if you're not fit, you're not going to make it. If you're fit, you're going to make it, okay? And sometimes it's interesting because there are some people who are super fit and super healthy, never smoked, um, didn't drink. They're like a lot of doctors are dying from the disease. And they're, you know, I know someone who died who's 55 years old. He's not old. He was fit and he worked out, all of that stuff. So, you know, you're right. I mean, I don't think that we should... Forget that heart disease is the number one killer. But but this this disease is causing a lot of economic turmoil. It's going, it's, um, and, and, you know, whereas heart disease is not um, contagious, this disease is contagious. So we have to take it seriously. We've got to shut things down, businesses down. We've got to keep people inside to stop the spread. And that has grave consequences economically, right? People are um, going to lose their jobs. Businesses are, we're going to, most people are going to go out of business. I personally have to lay people off at my practice. I mean, it's not a joke, right? So we have to, we have to take this seriously, even though it may not kill as many people as heart disease. We have to take it seriously because it is serious. But it, interestingly, like what we were talking about, both causes are basically um, many of, so heart disease is in this country, it's due to diet mostly, right? And you think about these diseases like the Spanish flu, like SARS, like the coronavirus, again, from the animals and the animal agriculture and the wet market. So you see that all of it is, and I'm not trying to oversimplify it because it's very complicated, but at the end of the day, there is a common cause here. And I think we, we need to, as a society, we need to recognize that. And this is the perfect opportunity to clean up our act and, um, you know, figure out a way to step away from our old cultural habits that are not necessarily right but it's just their habits. And we keep repeating these habits. 
for example, when you have a gathering and the centerpiece of your plate is a piece of chicken or beef, you know, we need to step away from these practices, even though we're culturally attached to them. We just have to find new ways to live because what we're doing right now is not working. Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said that better. And it's something we'll definitely all of us um, have to keep an eye on and, and hope for the best that things do get better. Um, and I'm sorry to throw that at you. Like first thing in the interview, it's like, you know, it's like on everyone's mind. So I appreciate your thoughts. Um, My but, pleasure. But Dr. Sadeki, tell me, um, let's go back, you know, let's focus on, on the work that you do. Um, how did you first get into medicine and gastroenterology? You know, when I was nine years old, I wanted to become a physician. Um, growing up, I, my father was very um, encouraging that I become a strong, independent woman. And he's always taught me that. And he's always helped uh, helped me understand that, um, you know, in many parts of the world, women don't have equal rights. So he kind of raised me as a little bit of a feminist and made me understand that there's inequality and that I could possibly be a big force and I could make changes in this world and that I should really um, nurture. He, I mean, you know, he noticed that I'm very um, kind of um, academically, I was doing, you know, I, I would do well, right? And he, he always said, you know, you, you're going to you're gonna do something big with your life one day. I know it. And he kept encouraging that. And, he, and you know, one day at nine years old, I had watched... I had watched a movie about Madame Curie, and he made sure of that. He made sure that I watched the documentary about um, Madame Curie, who was a physicist who um, who did research. And then, um, and so I saw this documentary, and I was so impressed by her. And as a nine-year-old, I was thinking, "Man, that would be so cool to be a scientist or a doctor, you know, and help save lives." And then I had gone to a doctor's appointment, and I remember uh, this ophthalmologist came out and with the white coat, and I was like that looks good. You know, I would love to be able to do that. So on the way back from the ophthalmology appointment, I told my mom and dad, I said, I think I want to be a doctor. And my dad was super happy about that. (laughs) And so, yeah, since then, I just always, every single day of my life, I wanted to be a doctor. It never changed. I had my compelling vision that I had in my brain. And I just kind of kept going towards that goal. And, um, so, um, you know, yeah, I just, uh, after college went to med school and, um, after med school, I just kept like lo- falling in love with it even more and more. I mean, as I've been, I've been a doctor for now, now re- real practice for, um, about 15 years. And every day I, I'm thankful that, um, God or the universe, whoever you believe in, you know, has led me to this career because I just, I just absolutely love it. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, that you that goes so far back at nine years old. I think myself at nine years old, I was playing like video games and watching SpongeBob. I had no, I wasn't even thinking that. So that's amazing. You were like thinking that far ahead, and you kind of had a, a little bit of a vision. Um, what made you, I guess, um, want to s- go into specifically with gastroenterology? Was there something that caught your interest while you were in school? Well, gastroenterology is is like a combination of procedures as well as cognitive thinking because we're all internists. All gastroenterologists are also, also internists, so we just subspecialized in GI. And so as an internist, I've always liked to put the whole body together and understand the internal like um, molecular cell biology and chemistry and 
the physiology and anatomy and like put everything together and have a deep understanding of the human body. And then when it came to subspecialty, I thought about nephrology, which is the study of the kidneys. And I thought about cardiology. And um, I think at the end of the day, it came to when it came to narrowing it down, I'm very good with my hands and I could have been a surgeon. And so I thought, you know, if I go into GI, it's a combination of cognitive thinking as well as um, using my hands because I'm good with procedures. So I do procedures, you know, non-invasive endoscopies and colonoscopies. So, you know, it was, it was just the perfect fit for my personality. And also, you know, later on, not knowing this at the time, later on, I fell into the nutritional aspects of it. And I, it, nutrition sparked my interest. And I mean, what better field to be in when you, you love nutrition? <laughs> I just Absolutely. got really lucky there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I watched Forks Over Knives. Um, I'm sure you've seen it and, and heard about it. Um, oh, yes. It yeah. changed my life. <laughs> Mine too. Uh, as soon as I watched that, I changed from an astronomy major to a nutritionist. I went down the nutrition path because of that wow. film. Um, yeah. And I just like changed like, you know, I was making steps like in my personal life, like getting rid of animal products, went vegan and wanted to tell everyone about it. So that's why I chose that career path. But that's um, awesome. How old were you? Oh, gosh. It was like, um, I was actually 21, um, 21 years old. And you think I'd be That's out partying awesome. and drinking? Yeah. yeah. You were watching Forks Over Knives as a 21-year-old? That's pretty cool. Crazy, right? And then I gave up like alcohol. Like I had my last drink ever was like with my favorite singer. I bought him a beer and like, yeah, I just like, I everything was like changing around me. I was trying to make better changes for myself. And at 21, yeah, it's kind of crazy to put that in perspective. But yeah, um, yeah. so that film was was amazing. And I've connected with all those doctors. I was just so moved. So did you go, did you go um, vegan overnight? No. Uh, so my parents are from Greece. And we like we we have 40 days of Lent before Easter, uh -huh. which means yes. essentially going vegan. It's giving up all animal products, even yes. oil sometimes. Right. So what I was like, I'd never done that before for the whole 40 days. So I was like, why not try it? You know, I'll give it a shot, whatever. I just watched this film like it all makes sense. This is a perfect test trial. So I did that. And when it came to Easter, everyone was having lamb. I decided to keep on going. And that's how I everything that. kind of started. Story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, now that I think about it, you do look Greek. I was there <laughs> last year in August. What a beautiful country. Oh, you went? What part? Well, I, first of all, I went to Milos, which was heavenly, mm -hmm. and and then Santorini, and yeah. then Athens. And I found so many vegan restaurants in Athens. They have, you know, there is no deficiency of that at all. Right. They have a good bit, and they always have, like, fresh vegetables and, like, oh yes, like whole grain pasta and all sorts of stuff that you can even get at like other restaurants too. Um, so that's, that's awesome. I'm glad you went and had a great time. Oh yes. Yeah, for sure. Greece is a, a really beautiful country. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, how did you stumble upon the vegan thing and how did you get on that? Yeah. You know, I was, I love animals like purely, um, it was purely ethical. And about 15 years ago, I um, realized that uh, the meat I was eating was a real animal at, at some point, And I, I, I made that connection that this meat um, was the part of the flesh of some animal um, who is no different than my dog. 
you know, essentially. And I realized that I was being a specious, saying it's okay to kill, torture, inflict pain upon this cow um, that I'm eating, but my dog should be treated like a princess and a human being. So I was like, this doesn't make sense. You know, and I realized, you know, when you have a pet, you know, you realize how much feeling they have, how much they want to live and how much they don't want to be tortured and killed and you know all of that stuff and you realize how similar animals are to us and how much they love their young and they care for their babies just like we do and um how much they love it affection and and so I was like wow you know I always thought that these animals should be bred for us to torture and kill and that's okay and 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 I instantaneously thought that was wrong but I you know I kept on eating dairy products and eggs because I really honestly did not know um, the cruelty in association with the dairy industry. I, I realized that they're actually worse than the meat industry. I didn't know that. So I kept drinking milk and eating cheese and I had a really, really, really terrible pustular eczema and skin reaction that looks like herpes all over your body. Yeah, super hot, right? I had that. <laughs> and I didn't know it's because of eating dairy. You know, I'm highly allergic to it. So is everyone else. I mean, like, you know, people should not be eating dairy, but we, just, we have these different things that happen to us. We just don't know what was happening. Um, so I kept on eating all that stuff. And then six years ago, I was at a seminar and someone, the person, the speaker said something about, well, if you're trying to lose weight and be healthy, why would you be eating baby calf growth fluid? This doesn't make sense. And then that same day, my cousin, who's a vegan, said, you should watch Forks Over Knives. As a doctor, you should know what's going on. And, and I watched Forks Over Knives, and literally that night, my life changed. <laughs> yeah, yours too, it sounds like. That's, yeah, yes. that, that is a powerful film. <clears throat> For yes. me, it was the health aspect first that I had connected with, I guess, just because a lot of things were going on in my life at that point, And everything made sense to make positive changes. But I watched Earthlings a little while after that. And I don't, have you have you seen Earthlings? Yes, it's that's the powerful. Vegan and yeah, that's what like ultimately made me make the connection with the whole animal cruelty aspect of things. That's um, right. It wasn't that's just about eating. A, yeah, absolutely. Can't recommend it enough. It wasn't just about eating plant based at that point, just for my health. It was about just everything, putting everything into perspective. So yeah. um, that's amazing. And uh, you just kind of realized that at that point, it made sense with your career as well, like to promote this with with your patients. Yes, because I mean, you know, um, if you believe in something so strongly, and you know, like my life changed, and I became so much healthier, right? And I realized, and my, my, um, I lost weight. I lost my un unwanted weight. My cholesterol went down and my eczema went away. And I realized, wow, this is beyond my moral values. Um, as a physician in the clinic, people are not paying me to come and, and hear my moral values. They are there to get help to be healthier. So I don't like to, you know, push my values on people in the clinic. My job is to be a doctor and to help prevent and reverse disease and treat disease. So, but, you know, once I real learned about all the, the health benefits of veganism, then I just, I just couldn't help it. I realized, wow, this is healthy. It's going to re I'm going to help my patients truly get to the root cause of their disease. And I'm helping the animals. It is a no brainer. I need to merge 
a plant-based nutrition and integrate it into my GI practice. And I've, it just helps me become that much more of a powerful doctor. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great. And I'm sure it's very fulfilling for you to not have to go against your values, but also knowing that you're helping the other person as well. For sure. I mean, ultimately, it's about helping people. And, you know, and I can, and, and that's what I'm doing every day. And you're right, I'm not even going against my values. It's so something I'm totally passionate in, in many ways. And I'm, again, like, this is why another, so six years ago, I had another, um, like, light bulb turned in my head thinking, man, I did the right thing, like nine years old, here I am wanting to become a doctor and it just keeps evolving and it become it keeps getting better and better, you know, and I'm so glad um, that now I can integrate plant-based nutrition into it to help the animals, to help people reverse disease. It's just, it's just all come together. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I kind of want to get into the work that, that you do now. So you, a lot of your work is working with the GI tract. So, you know, to, to say it, as bluntly as possible from mouth to anus, all the problems that are in between. So <clears throat> I kind of written a couple of these problems down. And these are some of the stuff that I've seen with patients as well. People send me questions about this stuff as well. So I was wondering if we could go through kind of each one and maybe the solution is the same for most or all of them. But if you can kind of like give your take on what might be the cause of each one and what might help. Oh, each sure. One. Absolutely. Good idea. Yeah. So, um, I would say maybe starting off with GERD first, you know, it's right in the esophagus, so very early in the GI tract. Um, it's reflux, it can be painful, it's also known as heartburn. Um, what are your thoughts on it and what have you found that helps? Yeah, so gastroesophageal reflux disease is a disease where um, the contents of the acid and the or bile or the contents of the stomach called the refluxate comes up into the esophagus and injures the esophagus. And um, so the esophagus, after you swallow food, the esophagus transfers that bolus, food bolus, um, in this tiny tube into it, it into the stomach. The stomach is where the food sits for like several hours and acid gets mixed up into it and, and, and then it becomes soft and then slowly gets passed into the duodenum for absorption and farther digestion. So at the bottom of the low, uh, lower esophagus, right before we enter the stomach, there is a sphincter called the lower esophageal sphincter. This sphincter is it's like a muscle, and it's supposed to stay kind of uh, tight. So when you eat, the nervous system orders the, uh, the sphincter to relax, to allow the food bolus to go down into the stomach. Uh, but then shortly thereafter, it's supposed to be tight and squeezed again. So the food content and the acid that's already in the stomach doesn't back up into the esophagus. It's supposed to be a one-way road. And that's the healthy way. Um, <clears throat> if that sphincter relaxes, the content comes up and backs up into the esophagus. Whereas the stomach mucosa is well-equipped to handle enzymes, and acid and bile, the esophageal, the esophageal mucosa is not well equipped to handle that. Imagine your car, whereas the outside of the car is well equipped to handle rain, snow, ice, wind, 
the inside of your car is not well equipped to handle that. If you had a convertible and you decided to drive around in the rain, the inside of it will just get ruined, right? Um, so it's the same thing with the esophagus. The esophagus, imagine, is is basically in in it's just supposed to push the food down into the stomach, and it cannot handle acid. It cannot handle bile. It cannot handle uh, the refluxate. Um, and the reason is that there are two, two completely different types of um, tissues. The mucosa in the stomach is basically has a mucus layer inside of uh, on top of it, and it's very robust and strong, and um, it it can handle that acid. So anyhow, um, so this this refluxate goes up into the esophagus and it causes esophagitis, inflammation of the esophagus, and then. After a while, you get transformation of the esophageal mucosa to something that would you would find in the gastric region because the, the esophagus is like, what the heck is going on? You know, this is not the right type of environment. I'm going to be more like the stomach. So then what happens is that's called baritosophagus where it just gets transformed into this stomach-type mucosa. And that baritosophagus is high risk for, um, is a risk factor for esophageal cancer, Okay. So bottom line is the food that we eat should go down the esophagus, stay in the stomach, and not come back up. And so then you think, all right, well, then how do you treat gastroesophageal reflux disease? Well, you know, unfortunately, in this country, we're very well focused on how to treat it with pills, right? There's H2 blockers like Zantac and Pepsit and um like um, renetidine and things like that. And then there's PPIs like Prilosec, Omeprazole, Someprazole, you know, Acefax, blah, blah, blah. Like there are so many different types. There's about 10 to 15 over-the-counter medicines out there to treat acid reflux. And what that does, the focus is to basically cut down the acid. And when you cut down the acid, what happens is you get relief of the symptoms you have like heartburn like chest pain like sore throat your tongue burning feeling of globus like something stuck in your throat all of that stuff gets better but unfortunately all of that stuff is not like you're not uh, preventing reflux it's just basically you're cutting down the acid right and it's not healthy to take these medicines because they have long-term ramifications so then the question is well then what else can you do Okay, the answer is lifestyle modifications. When you have acid reflux, the best thing to do is to prevent this from happening. And then it goes to the importance of that sphincter at the bottom of the esophagus, which is the gatekeeper, right? To keep this contents in, in the stomach from coming back up. They've done some studies where they've found that there are several factors that contribute to the relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. One of them is the fatty, fatty foods, okay? And I'm not talking about eating an avocado and a few nuts. I'm talking about like eating burgers and french fries, like the pizza. Uh, and so this is very important to understand because a lot of my patients come in after they eat pizza and they say, oh, that tomato sauce nearly killed me. And I'm like, my dear, it's not the tomato sauce. <laughs> Did you... Do you remember how much cheese there was on that pizza? 
So basically, where people think it's the acid that's the problem, it's not the acid. Acid belongs in the stomach. We're supposed to have acid in the stomach. It's The problem is when things come up. So the lower esophageal sphincter needs to stay tight. And so we know that a high-fat diet, which is the standard American diet, which is like 60%, 50-60% fat, relaxes the esophageal sphincter. And this, so that's the most important thing to remember out of this whole thing, fat, high-fat foods. Oily foods, like if you made, um, you went to an Italian restaurant and had fettuccine alfredo, that creamy sauce, that's going to kill you. It's just going to be terrible. So remember fatty foods. And I do want to emphasize that I'm not talking about whole fats, like, you know, um, avocados and nuts and seeds. I'm talking about processed fats like cheese and disgusting oils, right? And I'm not talking about a little bit of olive oil on your salad. I'm talking about like making a really oily, fatty meal. Um, so then, and so that's the biggest thing. This, the, the other things to consider is tobacco smoking. If you're smoking, stop smoking. That causes the lower esophageal sphincter to relax. Alcoholic beverages are another thing to consider. So if you have a pizza and a, and a beer, good luck. <laughs> you have to take that Zantac after all. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, but you know, um, there's obesity is a huge factor. 45% um, of our country is overweight or obese. I mean, that's a huge, that's huge. It's like one of the most commonest diseases in the world now is obesity. So the, there is thought that um, when you're obese, there is there the fat molecules produce these hormones like interleukins, TNF-alpha, and all these other inflammatory hormones that relax the lower esophageal sphincter. This is a theory, but we don't know exactly why obesity does that. It could be the abdominal pressure. Who knows? There is a, it's a risk factor for GERD. So if you are obese, um, I would say lose that unwanted weight. Um, there are other factors, but they're not as strong, but this this is this is the most important thing is when you have reflux, you should practice these lifestyle modifications. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, <clears throat> do you think the recommendation for why to avoid acidic foods is because possible inflammation that already exists from the stomach acid tearing away, you know, some of that tissue? Um, could it just be that it's sensitive to the acidic foods? However, the acidic foods are not causing the GERD? Exactly. So when you when I do endoscopies, I go I go into the esophagus and I go into the stomach and I'm looking and you you do notice I do notice that a lot of people have an inflamed stomach. And so what happens is when you have let's just say you were taking gobs of Advil or aspirin or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. A lot of women take those because of their cycles every day. A lot of uh, People, older people take it for cardiovascular protection. They take aspirin every day. A lot of people, uh, the elderly, oh my God, they take so much non-steroidals because of their joint pains, right? So these medicines, they uh, prevent the production of prostaglandins in the stomach and prostaglandins are responsible for healing the gut, constantly healing the gut and producing that mucus layer that's protective, right? In the stomach and the rest of the gut. So what happens is when you take these medicines, they uh, prevent that production of the prostaglandins. And so you don't get that nice mucus layer. So that's why they cause leaky gut. And that's why they cause damage. That's why they cause ulcerations. They literally like uh, kill that 
nice film that's supposed to be protective. So the defense of the stomach is gone. So there's tons and tons of inflammation suddenly, right? And then that acid can, at that point, um, be bothersome. So when you drink lemon juice or you could eat something citrusy, then you get you have problems. But normally, you and I, I can eat lemons. I can sit there and eat five or six limes or or lemons, um, and it wouldn't bother my stomach, right? So normally, we shouldn't have any problems with acid. It's when we have pathology in there, then suddenly the acid becomes a problem. For those people, it's actually a good idea to take some of these non uh, to take these portable pump inhibitors or H2 blocker medicines to heal the stomach, to have something to heal it first at, for a short period of time. Then you can tolerate all these good foods and then do the lifestyle modifications. I'm not, I, I hate medicines and I, I don't say, think that people should always, I'm just saying sometimes you're stuck and you have no choice but to take it for a couple of months, then it may be a good idea. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that may be why citrusy foods can, be, can bother people's stomachs when the protective layer is gone. Yeah, no, that totally, totally makes sense for sure. Um, and moving a little bit lower into the GI tract, because <clears throat> some people, actually a lot of people, um, bring up bloating and gassiness as a common problem. Um, what, what, causes that ultimately why do people get bloated and, and so gassy yeah good question good question actually believe it or not that is the number one complaint in my clinic as the gi is bloating and gas and we were uh, about like you know 60 to 100 years ago we used to say like stop swallowing air <laughs> we actually blamed our patients for swallowing too much air so we used to say don't talk when you're eating yeah i've uh, heard that before be careful right it's 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 crazy because like you know uh, oh i remember growing up my dad used to always tell me you're not allowed to talk at the dinner table which is sad because that's everyone's time to sit around and talk and, you know, be, be social. And it has actually having a meal with your family is the most important time of the day at dinner usually. And, and actually sharing a meal with a friend and having a nice conversation is part of our culture. You know, it's important. And so I was always like, man, this just does not make sense. Like why would human evolution, um, you know, be that way where, you know, when we're eating, we can actually swallow air. It just doesn't make sense to me. It turns out that I was actually right. Even though I was a child, I always thought that that doesn't make sense, you know. And then I was like, you know, and I, despite what my father does, says, I always like talk a lot and I don't get bloated. <laughs> so <laughs> I always thought about right. this whole thing doesn't make sense to me. And even in some GI books, you'll see, you know, says don't, don't. There is some truth to that. You do swallow a certain amount of air. However, it's not a big deal. It escapes um, your your GI tract, diffuses you know through the GI tract and out, and and it doesn't usually become that excessive because you can't possibly swallow that much air where it's excessive. But we have people who come in where they they're okay in the morning, right? They haven't eaten anything, and then as soon as they eat, they blow up like a balloon. Some of them truly like look pregnant and get abdominal distension, and some have that feeling of it. Okay, bloating and distension. So bloating is like the most common complaint I get. That is usually due to 
a problem in the small intestine. As we're going down the GI tract, we're in the small intestine, right? Called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where you have an inoculation of colonic type bacteria or uh, you have too much bacteria in the small bowel where it doesn't really belong. So this over-inoculation increases the number of bacteria that is supposed to be there or live there. And what happens is when you eat, you get fermentation of the food that you're eating. Um, and you basically, you're supposed to get a lot of this fermentation, like 99% of the fermentation is supposed to happen in the colon. And when that happens in the colon, you pass the gas from down below, and it usually is not supposed to cause too much distension. You get flatulence, but you don't get distension and abdominal bloating. But for some reason, when the overgrowth is in the small intestine, people get super bloated and gassy, and they start burping and belching. And that usually causes GERD too, by the way. When you get that SIBO, it pushes the gases and pushes the stomach content into the esophagus. That's another cause of GERD, by the way. But still, going back to the small intestine, you have all this bacteria produced fermenting the food that you just ate, especially carbohydrates, right? And they produce gas, which can, which is so many different types, like basically CO2, hydrogen. CO2 is also produced by our own cells, right? But they do produce CO2, they produce hydrogen, they produce methane, hydrogen sulfide, I mean, different types of gases. And these gases um, typically have a hard time going out from the bottom to come out of, it doesn't usually come out of the anus, it usually keeps coming getting trapped um, for, a, some, for some time into the small intestine where people feel really uncomfortable because your intestines balloon and like just be, become distended. And then other times you burp it out. So it keeps coming up into your, um, into your esophagus and comes out of your mouth. Some of it goes down um, after it passes through the small intestine, goes into the colon, and you have flatulence and pass gas and get it out. But And some of it diffuses out of your intestine, and it circulates in your bl uh, blood, goes into your lungs, and you breathe it out. And that's why we have bad breath a lot of times, right? Where does bad breath come from? Right when you eat things. That's interesting. Yeah, like imagine when you eat. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, of course, when you eat garlic and onions, right? Um, or, you know, you basically eat whatever that you eat. Um, it's like you brush your teeth and you clean out what's on your tongue and your teeth. Why is it that the next day you smell like garlic? It's like comes out of your pores, your sweat, uh, you sweat it. It comes out of your um, breath because all of that, those gases travel outside of the small intestine into your blood, circulate, go into your lungs, and then you exhale that. And that's where people's breath smell. A lot of people have a really, really, uh, they have really bad breath, right? That And they go to the dentist, and the dentist says, you know, you don't have any cavities, you don't have any abscesses to think that this is an infection. A lot of that comes from the GI tract, you know? So anyhow... Uh, so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is is a disease that is very common and it's very much under-recognized and a lot of GI doctors don't even believe in it. <laughs> I have patients coming to me suffering with bloating gas and they go to doctors who have said, yeah, we don't, we don't really believe in this disease. Well, 
get ready, folks. It exists. And I see a lot of it. I see a lot of it. And in the past, we used to call it IBS. Whatever we didn't understand, we'd call it IBS. You know, oh, it's IBS, you know. But now we know that it's it's more than just IBS. I mean, these, these people have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And when you kill off that bacteria, they are well. And their IBS goes away. Their bloating and gas goes away. So perhaps this is a separate disease. And it is a, a totally um, treatable disease. And we should respect it. I actually, uh, I don't mean to plug this in, but I'm going to plug it in. I have a group, a SIBO group. It's, uh, if he, people who are listening have problems with their gut and they think they have SIBO and they have been diagnosed with SIBO, go on www.yourgutconnection.com. And I have two registered dietitians who have, we have f- foods, recipes for people to follow and ways to treat their SIBO. And, you know, my biggest pet peeve about SIBO is that now there are a lot of online um, platforms teaching people to eat a low-fiber diet because if you eat a low-fiber diet, you're not going to have fermentation, right? And then you have less fermentation. You will still have fermentation, but you have less fermentation and then you have less bloating, right? So let's just do that. Well, what do you think is the problem? Is it good to eat a low-fiber diet? No, right? It's not at all a good good diet. So what do we do? Typical American way of treating things. Well, let's just, you know, since fiber is causing bloating, let's not eat the fiber. Since heart disease is killing you, let's put a stent in there. I mean, no one gets to the root cause, right? So that's the problem. So just because you have bloating, you shouldn't stop eating fiber. Because why is that a stupid idea? Well, I'm sorry, I'm being very frank about it, but it's a stupid idea. Well, because it risk increases your risk of colon cancer. It increases, you know, your, your risk of many other diseases, cholesterol and, you know, heart disease. You need to eat a high-fiber diet. Um, it's good for your gut to eat a high-fiber diet because that's where prebiotic-rich foods come from, from fiber. So then, you know, so what should we do? Well, the answer is, um, well, and then by the way, people who do that, they go on this FODMAP, low FODMAP diet, they do eat the low fiber diet, their diversity goes down uh, because they're not eating as much prebiotic rich foods, right? And they actually end up like getting sicker and it's, it's bad. So what you should do is get to the root cause. Why does one have SIBO? And you need to get to the root cause. And a lot of times... It's because of hypothyroidism. A lot of times it's because of diabetes. It's, a lot of times it's because they're taking some kind of a medication like omeprazole and Zantac that we're just talking about for reflux for long periods of time. Uh, medications are a big cause. Eating disorders, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, diverticulosis, diverticulitis. Um, so there, I can go on and on. There are a lot of causes. And you should get to the root cause and find out. If you can find the root cause, get to the root cause and find out why they have it in the first place and treat that root cause. And then what you do is you basically start them on a certain level of fiber and then continue reintroducing fiber and get them used to eating all that fiber. But then kill the overgrowth of bacteria, whether it's with supplements or with um, antibiotics you got to get rid of the overgrowth because it doesn't just go away with diet anyway. So it's not a good idea to eat a low-FODMAP diet uh, for long periods of time and stay in that elimination mode for too long because it's just going to hurt your gut in the long term. Long um, term. So in my group, we basically start people on a certain amount of fiber, which is um, 
you know, uh, it's still full of uh, prebiotic rich uh, foods and it's all whole food plant based. And then we slowly increase the fiber where people over the six phases at some point end up being able to eat um, a ton of fiber and still have much less bloating and gas and they get resolution of all their symptoms. So like you were saying before, there could be a number of causes that could be causing bloating and gassiness. I'm sure a lot of it is also from the food that people eat. Now, a, a, one thing I do notice after people do go vegan is they complain about bloating and gassiness. And I would think that somebody who's making a positive change, eating healthier, shouldn't be experiencing that. And I will admit, you know, I've been vegan for almost eight years now. And I do still experience uh, bloating and gassiness, you know, every now and then. So I'm just trying to put pieces together. And I'm sure you've heard of maybe cases too where vegans or people who are eating a whole food plant-based diet still experience bloating and gassiness and what's going on. Well, there. yes, of course. I mean, first of all, it's almost impossible for someone to never have even a little bit of bloating and gas. Uh, it, it's normal to have bloating and gas sometimes. Because first of all, if you eat a lot, you're going to have bloating because it's the physical distension of your stomach and your bowels because we tend to eat too much in this country, right? We go out to eat and then suddenly we have like a huge meal. And so that's the physical distension of the stomach and, and, and the bowels. Um, of course, you're supposed to have fermentation so that gas can accumulate in the gut and further cause a little bit of bloating and distension. So it's not... A, a path, it's not pathology to have some bloating and, and gas and some distension once in a while. It does become a problem when it, it's to an extreme. For example, people wake up in the morning and they have a flat stomach, but let's say they have an orange or a banana, which is not a huge meal, and then suddenly they have so much um, bloat that it's out of proportion to what they ate. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I'll tell you what, like last night, my mom made this Persian dish called gourmet sabzi, and it's full of red kidney beans and yummy vegetables. And it's, it's like, and I ate like three big plates of it. I mean, I went to bed last night going, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that much. Nice. <laughs> so it's not like I never get it. I, I get it too. But, but then again, this morning I had a banana, right? Nothing bad happened. I'm totally great. And so, so what, what we're talking about is, um, it's not just a little bit of bloating. I mean, these people are extremely bloated and their belly feels tense. It's almost like it's not just because they have a little bit of gas. They get discomfort, cramping, pain. They feel even more bloated and their belly feels even larger than it really is. So there's something it has do, in my opinion, I, I have this theory, it hasn't been proven yet, but um, it's, I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that these, um, they have probably leaky gut or gut permeability. And what happens is these gases that are being produced are irritating the nerves of the GI tract or the nerves of the abdomen. And so it's more of a feeling that they get rather than the actual physical distension that becomes a problem. So we're, we're 
at the embryonic stages of this disease, and we don't know much about it yet. But I can tell you that the the more you avoid the fiber, the more you're gonna um, damage the gut because you need prebiotic-rich foods to heal the gut, and so it, it makes sense to not cut down on your fiber. It's just it makes sense to systematically and with help of professionals eat more fiber somehow to um, to heal the gut. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, and again, you wouldn't want to get rid of the fiber. I mean, that would cause constipation, which is another GI problem. Um, with the bloating and the gassiness, would you recommend people avoid foods like beans and broccoli if they are experiencing gassiness or should they even take a probiotic to help? What are your thoughts on that? Definitely not a probiotic. I mean, if, if someone has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, probiotics actually may make it worse. I'm not a big, I'm not big on probiotics. I don't, I don't even think people should take probiotics generally. Um, some patients in, in a study of, with ulcerative colitis, it showed that probiotics are beneficial. I don't believe in taking probiotics at all. I, I think that we should, we don't have enough evidence, enough scientific evidence to make it um, good for everyone to take probiotics. This whole idea of uh, probiotics for all doesn't make sense. And everybody has a unique bacteria or uh, microbial flora in their gut. And if you could figure out how to individualize that to improve their flora, that may be one thing, but to throw a, a generic type of probiotics at people thinking, well, that's going to fix your problems. That doesn't work. You, you can't do that. So um, in, some in a study that was done in Israel about a couple of years ago, they showed that um, they eradicated the gut microbiome with antibiotics. And then one group got a fecal microbial transplant of their own stool after the antibiotic was finished. One group got probiotics. One group got nothing. The group that got the fecal microbial transplant did the best. The group that got um, nothing did better than the group that got probiotics. So, oh, wow. so probiotics are not necessarily good for you. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's, it may make sense to someone that, well, I'm putting these good guys in there. And they're going to go in there and, um, and my gut's going to make room for them. They're going to sit there, live happily ever after. And they're going to do all kinds of good things for me. Not true. It just doesn't work that way. We don't know whether they actually get inside the mucosa and live among the other organisms that are already there. Um, do they just do you just defecate it out and you have expensive poop? <laughs> um, do they go in there and actually cause havoc and war with the resident gut microbiome there? where there's competition, possibly. So for now, don't take probiotics until we have more information as far as how to actually customize um, these organisms. And, you know, everyone thinks that the gut microbiome consists of just bacteria. So what we swallow in a pill, a probiotic, is just bacteria. But there are other organisms that live there, like uh, fungi, like protozoa, like archaea and viruses. So you can't just take a large population of one of the microbiome residents and expect that you're going to achieve balance. 
unless you found a way to eat all five, <laughs> the virus is right. the person, you're not going to achieve a balance there and you need a balance. So until then, I think we should just, until we figure more out about the uh, microbiome and how to make it healthy, people taking probiotics. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure prebiotics, aka fiber, is just as important. And people are thinking of doing the opposite of getting rid of the fiber where the prebiotic, uh, with my understanding, it feeds the the bacteria that you already have. Yeah, and that's key. That's exactly where people's focus should be. Eat more prebiotics. I'm not talking about supplements. I'm talking about eat fiber-rich foods. That's where you get prebiotics. Basically, it's fiber, and that feeds the bacteria, the microbiome that is already in your gut, and the the healthy ones. Because you can have, um, basically, you have healthy and unhealthy bacteria or organisms living in your gut, and fiber tends to give diversity to the good gut microbiome. Tends to feed the good guys. So what you need to do is eat prebiotics in a form of food, not supplements, just food, and then a variety of it. And let your gut heal on its own. It's not overnight. I've met many people uh, with gut diseases, and it tends to be a long process. We don't, we don't have a magic pill yet. You have to live a healthy life and stop drinking, stop smoking, start exercising, start eating healthy, and slowly the gut microbiome builds. When somebody does first go vegan, though, would you say to gradually start adding fiber to their diet, like with the beans and like the heavy vegetables, should people like just embrace them right away? Or should they kind of like follow like some sort of step plan that, you know, adds these foods slowly? Because that's what I've heard. I don't know if that's true or if it holds any value. Well, I mean, you can't like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's variable. Like, I went, I started eating a whole food plant-based diet overnight. Like I was eating vegetarian, but I was the biggest junk food vegetarian you've ever met. <laughs> and literally overnight, I went whole food plant-based and I had zero problems. I, you know, and I meet people like that who are, you know, who have no problems um, switching to a whole food plant-based diet and overnight without, you know, any bloating and gas and discomfort, maybe a little bit. But then I meet people who are who are who get v extremely gassy and extremely bloated when they eat fiber, right? My own mother is like that, and she won't listen. So I'm not even going to help her because she's not listening. But anyway, but I have patients of mine who are, you know, who need to gradually increase the fiber. So beans um, are difficult to digest; they're very high in fiber. So sometimes you should like you know, bring those into your diet at the very last, you know, start with a lot of fruits, eat a lot of fruits and potatoes and, you know, like starchy vegetables and, um, they have a lot of prebiotics, but they're not, they don't really cause that much bloating. Sometimes the high fiber foods like legumes, um, are just basically the last you should bring into your diet. And, some people get really bloated with grains like um, quinoa and um, things like that. And, and I hear a lot of people get uh, very bloated with uh, vegetables, like raw vegetables, right? Because they're very difficult to digest. 
So those ones you should like, they did a study where they looked at people who don't eat a lot of fiber rich foods and eat the standard American diet. And these people actually lack a certain gut microbiome. They actually lack a certain gut microbiome that can break down plant cellulose. Okay. You and I, we could eat a bowl of broccoli and everything's going to be fantastic. Maybe we'll have a little bit extra flatulence that day, but we're not going to like get sick from it. But these people don't know their body has no ability to break down plant cellulose. That's real. They have, there's actually a bacteria that does that. Right. So when they looked at this population of people who eat the standard American diet and they only get 10 grams of fiber, can you imagine getting only 10 grams of fiber per day? Crazy. That's right. They don't even eat raw vegetables. They don't have, they simply don't have that bacteria that breaks down mm-hmm. plant So it happens when they eat um, uh, kale. <laughs> what happens when they eat broccoli? I mean, imagine how sick these people will get. So for those people... Now, I'm thankful that even though I was a junk food vegetarian, I grew up eating a lot of vegetables. I still grew up like eating a ton of fresh vegetables and salads, right? I didn't grow up eating spam and tuna um, sandwiches, you know, so um, yeah, so but that that has to come those that kind of microbiome has to come from somewhere and it, it takes time to inoculate your gut with those um, uh, bacteria that can break down the plant cellulose. It means literally surrounding yourself with people who are healthy. I tell people, hang out with vegans because you share gut microbiome when you hang out with people. So slowly you you re-inoculate that microbiome and you can't just go take a probiotic and get it over with. You've got, it takes time, but you slowly re-inoculate your gut and then and perhaps the, 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 then you keep uh, feeding that microbiome and then the population just changes over time. Gotcha. Yeah. And that also that support helps, keeps you more on track. Everyone's motivated. Everyone's eating the same thing. So yeah, a lot of benefits hanging out with people who are into the same lifestyle as you eating healthy and, you know, being fit and all of that. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about some some more serious you know GI problems like when you talk about Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome, um, even colon cancer, which is you know up there in the charts of, in terms of death. Um, what can you say about the power of a plant-based diet when you're talking about more serious conditions like those? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking that. So we're going down. We've just talked about the esophagus, the stomach. We've talked about the small bowel. And we're moving down to the colon, which is the large intestine. And what could go wrong in the large intestine? Well, inflammatory bowel disease and colon cancer are two big ones that we can talk about right now. Um, maybe we can skip IBS. It's like <laughs> IBS is the is not a disease of the colon. It could be the diseases of this entire intestine. So we'll not talk about that for just a second here. But we're talking about colon cancer and inflammatory bowel disease, two really big big problems in the world right now. I see it all the time. Let's talk about colon cancer first. The second biggest cancer killer in both men and women in the United States. About 150,000 people will get diagnosed in 2020. 
with uh, colon cancer. About 50,000 will die of colon cancer. Um, in this country, we're doing a very poor job. It, in fact, it's March. You know, March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. We haven't been talking about colon cancer much this month because of the coronavirus, but, you know, uh, colon cancer will kill more people this year than the coronavirus. So let's get real here. This is important. And uh, so colon cancer um, is, guess, guess, just take a wild guess here. I don't know. You may have known, um, but you may know, know this information, but guess what percent of colon cancer is actually genetic due to hereditary causes and what percent is due to lifestyle? What do you think? Take a wild oh, guess. Oh, gosh. Um, I wouldn't know it, but just to take a guess, I would say maybe 10% is genetic. Correct. Five to ten percent is hereditary, and the rest is due to environmental causes. Okay, so think about how important that information is, because you most people when they get sick and they have diseases, they think, well, my father uh, was sick, so you know, and my mom was sick, so let's just you know face it, I'm going to have these diseases, and but you know, when it comes to colon cancer, very very few of these cancers are actually due to genetics. So it turns out that we have some information that colon cancer has some risk factors, right? So if you have the genetic, I'm sorry, that is a bad thing. Five to 10% of you, um, five, I'm sorry, five to 10% of these causes, I get it. There's really nothing you can do. You can be 15. Some of these hereditary polyposis syndromes, you're 15 and your colon is carpeted with polyps. There's really nothing you can do. You just have to be vigilant with, with regards to screening and see your doctor. This is important. But for the rest of you who don't have these hereditary causes, there are risk factors that cause colon cancer. And we have to know what these risk factors are. Number one, diet. <laughs> okay. A diet low in fiber has been, you know, is, is a risk factor. So, um, furthermore, there are studies that show that people who eat a lot of red meat and, um, processed meat are at a higher risk for colon cancer. So we don't know whether fish and poultry, eating a lot of fish and poultry causes colon cancer. We don't, it hasn't really been tested, but we do know that when you look at populations of people who eat a lot of red meat and processed meat, they're at increased risk for colon cancer. So lifestyle, as far as nutrition, nutritional lifestyle is really key in regards to preventing colon cancer. So if you're eating a lot of red meat, if you're eating processed meat, eliminate, please eliminate processed meat out of your diet, like uh, bacon and um, sausages and deli meats um, because these have um, some they're, they're, they have compounds that cause DNA mutations in your in your body and the World Health Organization has said that they're group one carcinogens meaning that they definitely without a shadow of the doubt, a doubt they are definitely linked to colon cancer um, and so it's like cigarette smoking same thing group one carcinogens stop doing that. If you're eating a lot of red meat, this is time to stop. It's it's a it's time to to eliminate that red meat out of your diet and try to incorporate more legumes or more um, tofu or tempeh or um, grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. 
into your diet because uh, red meat um, is associated with colon cancer. Not as strongly as processed meat, but still there's definitely a link and we need more studies to identify that. Poultry and fish, they have never been actually associated, but they haven't really been studied very well either. So the jury's hung on that. We'll know. So low-fiber diet, um, red meat, and, and processed meat we talked about. Sedentary lifestyles. Okay, so start moving. Get, get movement. Get outside. Walk, hike. Do something fun. Stop smoking. Stop drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol is also associated with colon cancer. And so these are some lifestyle modifications that you can uh, make to not become a statistic and have colon cancer. This is important. Um, but besides the lifestyle modifications, you know, it's very important that people participate in age-appropriate colon cancer screening. So it's not just about eating healthy. Even if you eat healthy, you should have colon cancer screening. Colonoscopy is one of them. There is also CT colonography, and there is stool studies, testings that are available. Screening means nothing is going on. You don't have any abdominal pain. You don't have a change in the bowel habits. You don't have any blood in the stool. You're doing fine, but you're 45, and you need a screening. You can choose from those three modalities. If you have a family history of colon cancer, you should do it sooner. So talk to your doctor. It should be 10 years earlier than the person who had it or age 40, whichever comes first, okay? So that's really important. Um, but, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to do a colonoscopy. Fine, there are other modalities to choose from. You can do a stool test out of your house. You can do a CT colonography. You can do a colonoscopy. You choose. I chose a colonoscopy because it's diagnostic and therapeutic, meaning that you go in there, you have polyps, the physician can cut them out right there, then and there. And I had two polyps, it's out. Unfortunately, with the Cologuard test, if you have it, then you have to have a colonoscopy after that. CT colonography, you get a lot of radiation. So I always discourage people out of doing that one. I encourage people to choose from colonoscopy and stool testing. Those are our two, my favorite two modalities. But again, it's individualized. Um, but you know, if you eat healthy, right, you're eating healthy, you're exercising, you're not smoking, drinking and doing all the bad stuff. And you're doing the age appropriate screening, it's almost impossible to die of colon cancer. And this disease should be the thing of the past, like no one should die of colon cancer anymore. Maybe very few people who, un who are unfortunate, they're like 30, like I just scoped a 30 some year old with colon cancer. And he had blood in the stool, and so he came to me. It wasn't a screening test anymore. It was a diagnostic test. So if, as, as soon as you have pain, change in the bowel habits, and blood, it's not a screening. It's a diagnostic test. I did a colonoscopy, and this individual happened to have cancer. There's nothing this person could have done because, you know, um, that person was vegan for like six years, you know, but this this colon cancer started like way many years before um, the vegan diet was started. Um, most of us grow up eating hot dogs, right? So you, you get some of these cancers grow, like these polyps have been there for 10, 15 years and they slowly grow and then they become cancer in the last six years. And so even though this person was a vegan still, so but what I'm saying is sometimes you can't totally prevent colon cancer because young people can get it too and 
before age 45. But for the majority of the people, majority of the population, 99.9% of the time, if you eat healthy, avoid red meat, avoid processed meat, and exercise and don't drink and smoke, and, 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 and lose weight if you're obese, and do this age screening colonoscopy, it's almost impossible to die of colon cancer. Wow. And, you know, you hear about everybody talk about the severity of cancer, um, how important it is to, to have this fight against cancer. Um, you know, the number one, I think, form of cancer that leads to death is um, lung cancer, if I'm correct. Correct. And then the second one, like you mentioned, is colon cancer. So it's just, it blows my mind that, you know, we talk about avoiding cigarettes. Obviously, there's a label on there causes cancer, you know, warning clearly on there. But why are we not talking about this one that's like right behind it? Totally. I mean, the vegan community is now talking about it, but we're like the only ones. It's interesting that people are serving bacon every day and sausages. And it's like, why are we not talking about it? I mean, how many more people should die before we wake up to the fact that people are dying of colic cancer? And it's preventable. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm really glad you, you tackle that and you speak up about it and, and the work that you do with your patients. Um, and then and then lastly, on my list, moving through the GI tract, which is probably the most awkward one to talk about, but I feel like it's important because I still get questions about it. Um, hemorrhoids. Uh, I don't know if that is diet related at all. Um, but what would you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, um, before we talk about hemorrhoids, let's talk about inflammatory bowel disease really quick because oh, we yes. skipped that. So inflammatory bowel disease is is basically a broad term used to distinguish um, basically um, a type of bowel disease where there is inflammation and generally speaking, the body is attacking colon or the small bowel. And so there's inflammation and it's basically almost like an autoimmune where your body is attacking itself Whether and most of the time it's in the colon, but in the case of Crohn's disease, it's also in, in the small bowel. But inflammatory bowel disease um, can be ulcerative colitis, it could be Crohn's disease, or it could be colitis, right? This, these are all inflammatory types of bowel disease. And basically, inflammatory bowel disease means it's not infectious colitis, it's not caused by infection, it's due to inflammation, and it's not due to irritable bowel syndrome. It is literally... Okay, so now... Ulcerative colitis is a disease where it's limited to the colon and it's it affects the, the colon. Crohn's disease is a disease that mouth to anus anywhere, mouth to, mouth to anus. It's usually in the small bowel and the large bowel. And it is a full thickness inflammation of the bowel. And um, basically, it is a very debilitating disease. And microscopic colitis is an inflammatory one that usually just occurs in the colon. Now, um, it's a very common problem in the United States, and the cases are rising. And there is some thought that, it will, so we know that genetics have something to do with it. We have isolated genetic risk, risk factors. However, I believe that diet has more to do with it than genetics. And even if you have the genetics, you could possibly never have this disease if you play your cards right, sort of, um, you know, if you, if you eat healthy. 
um, a lot. I see a lot of cases where kids are doing well and then they go to college and they start eating hot dogs and burgers and they get a flare up and they usually think it's due to stress. I highly doubt that inflammatory bowel disease is due to stress. It usually flares up because people go to college and they start eating badly. Yep. And they start eating campus food, which is basically junk crap that doesn't belong in people's body. Absolutely. And um, and so basically, these people get inflammation of the intestines, bleeding, diarrhea, weight loss, um, all kinds of bad things happen. And um, we know that, you know, when you eat, for example, in the case of ulcerative colitis, um, we know dairy can make it worse. Um, we know that sulfur-containing amino acids could also cause it or make it worse. So, you know, we need, we definitely need more studies in regards to inflammatory bowel disease and treatment of inflammatory bowel disease and diet. This is important that we get, we definitely need more studies, but, and not to oversimplify it, but diet has a lot to do with if whether or not people go into remission and whether or not people um, stay in remission. So in my experience, I've had a few patients go into complete remission with diet alone, but it's very important to know that most patients cannot just go into, into remission with diet alone and they need some of these medications to induce remission and then they can stay in remission if they um, are eating a whole food plant-based diet. And so that's what I do for a lot of my patients. So if you have like, imagine, so a lot of people say, I just want to do it with diet, but they have to remember, look, diet does not normally induce remission. Um, and so, I mean, it, there's always rare cases, but generally speaking, like imagine your entire house is on fire and you go take one of those little tiny little red fire hydrants and trying to like, oh, yeah, sure. Put out the fire, you're not going to win. What do you really need? You need the fire department with those gigantic hoses, maybe a helicopter uh, to put down, uh, to put out the remission. And then you ask questions, well, how did I get this fire in the first place? Let's fix the gas leak. And then it doesn't, I don't get fire problems again and again. It's the same thing with inflammatory bowel disease. When your entire colon is, in, is on fire, you can't go like, I'm just going to eat some lettuce and tomatoes and oh, Oftentimes, you need an induction of reduction with some of these big guns like uh, steroids. Okay, that's what I tend to use. I put people into remission over a short period of time in a quick way, and then I keep them on a whole food plant based diet because now we've stopped the gas leak. And let's see what happens. And some of them never get inflamed again. They stay in remission with the whole food plant based diet. Some of them do get um, inflamed again. Then we know, okay, we've got to use something else. And then let's keep on this whole food plant-based diet. Let's see. We use a medicine and then we keep them on a whole food plant-based diet. Let's say they, they flare again. Okay, then we need to step up the therapy and do, do something else. But um, generally speaking, if people listen and they do their card, they play their cards right and they we induce remission right away, don't go for years with inflammation. It's purely a stupid thing to do because you keep destroying your gut even more and more. You keep breaking down these tight junctions and you get more and more inflamed. Instead, hit it hard, sort of speak. You hit it hard, you induce remission, then you chill. And you're like, let's see what happens with a whole food plant-based diet. 
If you need to, you step up the therapy. But if you don't need to, you don't. And the majority of the time, I hit it really hard. I induced the remission, kind of like the firefighters with the helicopter. And then we chill on a hopeful family. And I've had great success with that. And we need more randomized control studies to prove what I'm doing is great <laughs> and the right thing to do. But in the meanwhile, in my patient population who are very diehard about integrative medicine and holistic therapies and not using medicines, we've been doing fantastic, you know, keeping in remission with the whole food plant-based diet. It explains everything because if you think about it, when you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you're eating a fiber-rich, uh, you're eating fiber-rich foods that create the short-chain fatty acids that heal the gut, decrease inflammation, heal the tight junctions between the cells and decrease inflammation. It makes sense, right? Sure. So if you have a doctor who says IBD um, has nothing to do with diet, you may want to change doctors, just yeah. say. <laughs> Turn around and run. <laughs> Turn around and run. Yeah. But that's a great analogy. I really like that, um, that something, a problem might seem like a little bit of a spark in the beginning and you don't you know, give it an eye and all of a sudden one day you have a wildfire. And that's yes. when you know, you're panicking and you're not thinking back to when it was such a small problem, you know, you could have easily prevented it. But, you know, I'm still amazed at what this diet can do, even when the problem is big. You know, even when you have Absolutely. gone to a stage like colon cancer, that it still has, you know, potential to help you even at that la late, later stage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of even colon cancer can be completely uh, pre treated and, and uh, eradicated if you catch it in time. Um, so if you catch it in stage one, two, it's, it has a very favorable prognosis um, rather than waiting till it's stage four. Uh, so we didn't talk about this, but I do want to quickly talk about it. Screening starts at age 45, but remember, if you have a family history, it starts sooner. But if you don't have a family history, remember, if you have a change in the bowel habits, abdominal pain, and uh, blood in the stool, you've got to go to the doctor and ask because a lot of 30-year-olds, I mean, like I said, I've had three or four recently um, people diagnosed in their young um, years, um, and they had bleeding as their first sign. And so a lot of, we'll talk about hemorrhoids in a second, but a lot of times people have bleeding and they think it's hemorrhoids and it's not hemorrhoids. It could be, it could be polyps. And if you catch them early, um, you can get rid of them. So when it comes to um, hemorrhoids, you know, hem we have, the anus is a really bad design, by the way. Let me just tell you that right off the bat. <laughs> the anus is a really bad design um, because it's, so it's, it's this area the end of the colon, after you pass the, the, you go into the cecum, ascending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, sigmoid colon, and rectum, and then there's something called the dentate line at the bottom that, that separates the, the colon from the anus. And the anus is basically kind of like my hand here. This is the same thing around the sphincter, right? On the outside of the sphincter. Just like regular skin. It's just regular skin. That's why it can be very painful when you have hemorrhoids, right? So it's the anus part has regular skin, and then there's a dentate line, which is just basically a line that separates the rectum and the anus. So above the dentate line, you have ves vessels, and when they get engorged and, and um, basically abnormal, 
it's called the internal hemorrhoids. You can't see them, you can't feel them, but they're there. In outside of the dentate line, below the dentate line, when you have, the, you also have blood vessels who can get engorged and enlarged, and those are called external hemorrhoids. Okay, and within the anus canal, anal canal, there is also um, pathology that can happen, which are called fissures. Fissures are these cuts, like a paper cut on your skin. Imagine having yeah, that in ouch. your anus because you have constipation and you, you go to have a bowel movement and it cuts through and it goes deep into the muscle and those are so painful. So if you have a super painful anus, anal canal, and where it's like you want to like, it's like childbirth when you're having a bowel movement, that's a fissure. That's not hemorrhoids. Those are super painful. And like you, when you go to do an anal exam, as soon as you put your finger there, people are about to like die in, in pain. That's a fissure. So I don't even, I stopped the exam right there. I'm like, no, this is a fissure. Let's treat it. So these are deep cuts. And a lot of people get it because of constipation, the good old American diet, standard American diet, because people eat very little fiber. And once you get that cut, good luck healing it. When I was young, I got a fissure and it took me 15 years to heal it. I used to eat McDonald's. I used to work at McDonald's and I used to eat McDonald's all the time, you know. But, um, you know, basically it's low fiber diets and um, people who are constipated, which is very, 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 very common, right? So what you have to do is start eating a ton of plants and avoid meat, dairy, and eggs and just eat a ton of plants and eat a high fiber, like a fiber supplement to make sure your uh, stool looks like a type four stool on the Bristol scale stool chart, which looks like a sausage. This is the only sausage you ha should have in your life. Your right. poop should look like a sausage. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or a banana. Or it should look like a basically long log, like a, you know, um, mm -hmm. basically form stool right. without cracks. And it, it, that's, that's a normal stool. So basically, um, it, you know, it should not require a lot of straining. It should come out easily. And it should basically, it could come once a day, a couple of times a day, it could come once every three days. But when it comes out, it should not require training and it should look normal. So anyway, if you don't have that and you have a fissure, please achieve that because <laughs> it's really important because every time you have a bowel movement, that anal canal rips again and the fissure doesn't heal. And you need a medicine called nitroglycerin that you insert in there like four times a day. And you have to put your finger deep into the canal to insert the medicine. Ask your doctor for that. So then forget the fissures for right now for a second. What else could happen? Internal hemorrhoids or external hemorrhoids? Internal hemorrhoids do not have any, you don't, you don't have pain with them. They're, they bleed, they generally bleed a lot. And they could come out of the anus and hang out and they, they could go back in. But generally speaking, blood is the most common uh, way that they manifest. Again, you need to avoid constipation, eat a high-fiber diet. That's the treatment. Sometimes they don't go away with that, so you have to put bands on them to eradicate them. But they can come back again if you're not careful. External hemorrhoids are also um, dilated blood vessels of the external sphincter. They're very painful. And sometimes they can, and they itch a lot too. They get itchy and they get painful. And sometimes they can get, um, a blood clot can get stuck in them. 
and so you can get an external hemorrhoid thrombosis. And literally, it's the most painful thing in the world where you have to go to um, the emergency room or see a colorectal surgeon where they cut it and they evacuate the blood clot. So that's how you treat those. Ouch. <laughs> it doesn't sound fun at all. It's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So it sounds like some of the... Uh, uh, some of the bad diet, like a McDonald's diet, a standard American diet, right? That that can cause some of the straining because of the low fiber, and you you know your poop's not like you said, like a sausage or a banana. It's more, I would imagine, like little pellets and like other stuff that people normally report. Um, but have you noticed that switching to a plant based diet can help some of those issues, or is that something that should you know you should just seek medical attention with? Well, many times, if you have hemorrhoids, it's not going to kill you. So relax, you know, it's fine. A lot of people have them. So start eating a high fiber diet and go to the grocery store and buy a fiber supplement and start taking the fiber supplement and stop eating meat, dairy and eggs and eat a whole food plant based diet and see what happens. The only time it's an emergency, if it's a thrombosed external hemorrhoid, where it's extremely painful and it's basically like it's unbearable you should go see a doctor and if you have a very painful fissure you should see a doctor but if it's just hemorrhoids and you have a little bit of blood and a little bit of stuff bulging out and it's not really painful and it's not an emergency you could totally treat it at home with some over-the-counter uh, preparation age medicines and things like that and eat a ton of fiber and believe me most of the time when people come to me with hemorrhoids, that's what I tell them. Because 99% of times, it's not even an emergency. It's just something they could have treated at home. So, but you know, when people have blood in the stool or blood in the toilet or on the napkin, sometimes they think it's a hemorrhoid and then it's not. So if you have blood, you need to consult with a doctor. If you think it's a hemorrhoid, eat a high fiber diet and perhaps that could, um, that could be treated. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, wow. What, what, what a journey. I mean, we went from like throughout the whole GI track oh, and um, we traveled. Yeah. <laughs> learned, learned so much. Um, I wanted to ask you, this is my last question here for someone who has an altered GI track. Maybe they've had weight loss surgery. Um, they have a smaller stomach now or a complete bypass. Uh, in what ways would you say that they should alter their diet? If any way, um, should they eat less fiber, um, just less meals, uh, smaller meals, but more frequent? Um, what are your thoughts on that? So that's a very good question. Um, initially, right after surgery, they have to follow the recommendations of their surgeon because immediately after surgery, the anatomy is altered and it needs to heal. But I get patients post-gastric bypass all the time. And they've been, um, if they're not in the immediate post-op situation, um, but they're just basically a normal person now, just um, have to eat and drink. Um, and, you know, you could also talk to my friend, um, an incredible physician, Dr. Garth Davis, uh, who is a, is a bariatric surgeon. And I believe he would agree with me that, and I'm, I'm the GI gastroenterologist he's a, a GI surgeon so if you think about it um, you know two different worlds but we would probably agree that eating a whole food plant-based diet is absolutely beneficial for people who post bariatric surgery because number one you don't want them to gain the weight back right most most of the people who get bariatric surgeries because they have diseases that would otherwise kill them like 
they're at their like they're 400 pounds and they could die if they don't lose the weight and they have diabetes and high cholesterol and hypertension and they can't walk because of their joints and they're at a point where they've basically hit rock bottom because of their obesity and they would die if they didn't get the surgery so we would do surgery on them I don't but gastric uh, a, a bariatric surgeon would and but then the what's the most important thing is to make sure that they don't um, get they don't become overweight again or obese again right isn't that the, the goal the surgery helps you lose weight, but if you don't watch what you eat, you will gain the weight back again. And this happens a lot, actually. Why? Because a lot of these bariatric surgeons are not as smart as my friend, Dr. Garth Davis, and they would tell them, eat a high-protein, um, high-fat keto diet, right? They put them on keto diets. And so these people will die of heart disease, they'll die of, like, they gain the weight back, they'll get, like, diabetes again, and it all comes back. So the most important thing is to make sure that after this very cumbersome, difficult uh, surgery where you're like altering someone's anatomy, then you make sure that they don't gain the weight back again, right? I mean, this is important and people don't emphasize on this enough. Um, and I mean, Dr. Garth Davis does. He, so he puts people on a whole food plant-based diet. I do too. I say, eat a whole food plant-based diet so you don't gain the weight back. And also, it's important to eat a whole food plant-based diet, even if you've had altered anatomy, to make sure that you have a healthy gut, a healthy heart, a healthy pancreas, a healthy metabolism. It really doesn't make a difference, you know. Some of these people are at higher risk for some vitamin deficiencies because of the bypass, so you have to be conscious of that. For example, they become iron deficient, so you have to make sure that they take certain supplements. So it's a little bit different um, than, and, than if you have a normal gut, but these people um, basically had rock bottom. They had to get this surgery done, and here we are now. So then they have to take certain supplements that you and I normally wouldn't have to, but when it comes to the diet, it's the same, same diet. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad we talked about that because it's, you know, we talk about, you know, eating a whole food plant-based diet. And then, you know, you have people like that who reach out to me. I'm sure they reach out to you as well, who kind of feel a little isolated and, and have those extra concerns of, you know, can I get enough iron and, and other things that they might not be absorbing because they are missing or, or the food, rather, is not going through that certain body exactly. part. The duodenum is bypassed. So a lot of times, um, the duodenum is what extracts um, certain nutrients, micronutrients, like iron, vitamin D, vitamin K. Um, they usually go through the duodenum. So if that part of the GI tract is bypassed, um, you could potentially become nutritionally deficient in regards to those certain micronutrients. Um, and look, no one ever thinks that the gastric bypass should be anybody's first choice. Okay, even the bariatric surgeons would tell you that. But if you have, if you have had it and you have to have it, please be, make sure that you eat healthier than the normal people with the normal GI tract. Because I mean, I see so much iron deficiency in people who don't have that, 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 you know, they have doctors who don't understand nutrition. I mean, even if you have to get the surgery, go to Dr. Garth Davis or someone who understands nutrition. It's really important. A lot of times 
some of these surgeons, they do the surgery and they're like, goodbye. Now I'm not going to make any more money off of you. So, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so these people are go to nutritionists and dietitians who don't understand nutrition. They go to doctors, GI doctors who don't understand nutrition. And they're followed by, by these individuals who end up actually um, not helping them very well, you know. So it's very important. And, and you know, unfortunately with the, the rate we're going, we're going to have more and more gastric bypass patients. We're going to have a ton of people who end up getting the surgery done. And it saddens me because people should lose weight with diet and lifestyle modifications. But we're going to have a ton of these people who get to that point where they can't even walk anymore. Mm-hmm. And then surgery is risk benefit ratio is such that surgery is indicated, right? And they have really good data in the surgery world that these people actually end up doing okay. (laughs) So we have to go with evidence-based medicine. And it's unfortunate because I'm sure all of those surgeons would rather have those patients lose weight with diet. But the reality of it is that it does. And a lot of these patients are uneducated. They don't understand nutrition. They're lower socioeconomical status. They can't afford fruits and vegetables. It's a big problem. Let's face it. It's a big problem because our stupid government subsidizes the wrong shit. They subsidize um, meat and dairy instead of subsidizing the what? Fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and grains, right? As long as we have this oblivious government subsidizing the wrong stuff, we're going to have problems like that. And then to obliterate. So you understand, like we are not getting to the root cause, but we're, we have a problem in our hand that this person's going to die. They can't even get out of the room, out of the house. Someone has to go grocery shop for them and bring them food to eat because they can't even get out of bed. So they get these bypasses, but we're going to have more and more of that, right? Because we're not getting the root. How do I know? How, am I a magician or do I have a crystal ball? No, but I know how America is eating. Oh, yeah. So how could we not, how could we not think that we're going to have more gastric bypass patients? We are going to. So, but then the question is, um, you know, how do we, so as dietitians, nutritionists, you're a nutritionist, um, get ready, learn how to treat gastric bypass patients. Trying to keep my mind open, right? Learn about as many topics as I can, because it's not as simple as just telling somebody to eat plant-based. I mean, it's going to help you regardless of what you're suffering from, from what it sounds like, but there are so many like little details that make things a little bit more complicated than they are, but regardless, um, you know, we're on a good track here promoting this diet. And um, like you said, people are going to continue becoming overweight and obese. It's going to keep getting worse. If you compare, you know, from a decade ago, each year, the um, the obesity numbers, like those maps, you see those colorful maps mm-hmm. that change from blue to red or whatever it is. And you see obesity just getting more and more prevalent. It's just in it's incredibly sad. It's a bigger problem than the coronavirus, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. So I'm really glad about the work that you're doing, Dr. Siddiqui. Um, I want more people to to reach out to you if they can, because we covered a lot, but I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into um, GI health. So if yes. people want to get I wanna, in touch with I you. I do want to, uh, you know, I'm very active on Instagram. So follow me um, on Instagram, Angie.Siddiqui. But, you know, I, I cannot give medical advice on Instagram. And but I'm available for national like nationally and internationally 
to treat people. Um, I'm sorry, not treat. So I'm available for telehealth, telemedicine. So you basically get on your laptop or phone with a camera and we can have a video chat. And in order to schedule an appointment, if you're in California, I can be your doctor and I can treat you and give you medications. But I don't have, my license is from California, but I don't have an out of state. uh, I don't have any other uh, licenses. I only have a California license. So if you're from out of state, um, I'm available for coaching. And what I usually do is I work with your doctor. So you have a GI, I just coach you. So it's a coaching. It's basically what I can help you say, okay, you need this, you need that. And then talk to your doctor, ask for this, ask for that. So if you have inflammatory bowel disease, I'm, I can be very helpful. If you have SIBO, I can be very helpful. If you have IBS, um, GERD, all of that stuff, I can totally coach you through this. Then you can call me 949-404-4444. So it's 949-404-4444. Or you can go on my website, www.drangiehealth.com, D-R-A-N-G-I-E health.com and schedule an appointment, telemedicine appointment. Awesome stuff. Well, I'll definitely have all of that in the show notes below so people can easily click on that and uh, refer to that to find out all the information regarding um, about the work that you're doing. But hey, thank you so much for coming on the show and, um, you know, spending all this time talking about all this great stuff. So, um, you know, if you ever want to come on again, you know, you're more than welcome. I really enjoyed talking to you. You're a sweetheart. Oh, thank you. (laughs) uh, You know, um, quite knowledgeable and had wonderful questions. I hope more and more people watch your show because um, it sounds like you're doing great work and talking to all the, you know, knowledgeable people out there and getting the word out. Um, I would love to also include this show on my Instagram. So let me know when it's available, please. Absolutely. I definitely will. Well, thanks so much. Stay safe with this whole coronavirus thing. Uh, We'll all be keeping an eye on it. And, uh, you know, practice that social distancing. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. 